Good morning. Christmas is over. 362 days until Santa Claus returns. I'm ready. I love Christmas time. I think this summer I'm going to set aside like a six months till Christmas holiday. I'm just going to listen to Bing Crosby all day. Uh, well, welcome to EV Free. We are so glad you guys are with us. If we want to turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we just came out of an Advent series. So now we're hopping back into Luke, reading through it slowly but steadily. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 1. This is when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. You know, I just came back from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Any Oklahoma fans in the house? <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to do that every time I speak, just to remind myself there are so few of us from Oklahoma. But there's something nostalgic about going home. I love going home, seeing my family, uh, seeing my nephew, and I also get the chance to see my friends. Now, a lot of my friends that are in Tulsa that I'm still in contact with were friends I made at ORU. Uh, ORU is Oral Roberts University. You probably also haven't heard of that, so just consider it Oklahoma Roberts University. And uh, I remember uh, meeting these friends, and the first year I was there, I had, a, I had a senior talk to me. He said, be really careful who you make friends with. I said, why? He said, well, my parents always told me this. He said, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. I thought, well, that's maybe the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? But I thought, whatever, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do my thing. So I moved on onto a floor called MOG. MOG stood for Men of God. And it was notorious that this floor, they were, they were troublemakers in the good sense, but they were also addicted to adventure. They loved excitement. They loved adventure. And as a result, they were part of the, the outreach and missions program. Now, when I went there and the other five freshmen that were on that floor, we had no intention or desire to be a part of the outreach and missions program. But as we were on the floor, a lot of the juniors and seniors that were involved would say, hey guys, you should, you should come to this event. You should come to this promotional event. Come to this outreach with us. That, hey, we're new. We want to make friends. We want to meet some girls. We'll go. So we began to attend these events. And slowly but surely, by our sophomore year, they'd say, hey, why don't you come on a mission trip with us? We'd say, well, I think we could go on one mission trip. So our sophomore year, we went on a mission trip together. And our junior year, I thought, man, that was awesome. That was so good. It was so much fun. Then the senior said, hey, why don't you lead a trip your junior year? I thought, hey, that might be interesting. So we prayed about it. We talked about it. And all of us led a different team that year. In fact, we led teams for the next two years. By the time I graduated, I found that the friends that I made at ORU and the people that I allowed to speak into my life, the people I was closest to, they began to rub off on me. I got the adventure bug. I got the exciting bug. I just wanted to do outreach and missions, and so did my friends. 
And so we're, we're all kind of still in that boat. We're a part of a big group text. We play fantasy football together. And we're always talking about the trips that we're going to take, the mission trips we're going to do, the outreach we're going to be a part of. And I learned while being at ORU that it's so true. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Because the people that you're around the most, they begin to rub off on you. Now, a lot of you spent time with family and extended family over the holidays. And you know this is true. You got home stressed out and you didn't know why. Because that family's rubbing off on you, right? Or sometimes you leave a gathering or party and you're just in such good spirits. And you don't know why. It's because those people, they're just rubbing off on you. Show me your friends. Show me your family. And I will show you your future. This was true in first century Israel as well. We have this group called the Twelve. They are the disciples of Jesus. And they have decided to allow Jesus to rub off on them. They want to be as close to Jesus as possible. They want to be with Jesus wherever he goes. So I began looking. Before these these 12, before the disciples are sent out in chapter 9, I just wanted to do a review. Where have the disciples been with Jesus thus far? So I didn't read all the text. I started reading the big uh, little... They're not chapters, but they're like the headlines, right? Beginning in verse 5, chapter 5. Jesus calls the 12 to himself. And then as the disciples are traveling with Jesus, it says Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Pretty cool. Next, Jesus forgives and he heals a paralyzed man. Again, you can imagine the excitement and astonishment of the disciples. Next, Jesus is wrapped up in controversy as he eats with sinners Later, Jesus is questioned about fasting by the authorities. Later, Jesus is questioned about the Sabbath by the authorities. The 12 apostles then hear this giant teaching called the teaching on the plain, the sermon on the plain. Then chapter 7, a centurion's servant is healed. Very cool. Jesus raises a widow's son. Again, pretty amazing. Jesus is compared to John the Baptist. Jesus is involved in this scandal concerning a sinful woman that anoints him. Jesus launches into some more teaching. Eventually, Jesus calms a storm. And Jesus then raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. These are all pretty cool things. You can imagine as the disciples, if you yoked up with the ministry, you yoked up to the right one. This was the exciting one. This is the one filled with adventure, filled with healing, filled with controversy and scandal and the authorities kind of questioning them. This was the place you wanted to be. You were in the center of the action. But if you were a disciple, you knew that you were more than a spectator. You weren't just around Jesus to be his fan or to watch what he was doing. You wanted to watch what he was doing because you wanted Jesus to rub off on you. You wanted to be with Jesus because you wanted to be like Jesus. You just, didn't, you just didn't want to know what Jesus knew. You wanted to be able to do what Jesus did. That was the goal of being a disciple, to be with Jesus, to be like him. So we find ourselves in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus had called the twelve... Now, if you're reading the Bible, this is not the first time that 12 are called. 
if we were to flip back our Bibles to Genesis, and we're not, we'd find in Genesis chapter 12 that God makes a promise to Abraham. Promises to bless him, to give him land, and to give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. As Abraham's family grows throughout the generations, we find the nation of Israel. And Israel is divided into 12 tribes. This is the first time that the 12 are called. And the 12 are called and they're given a vocation. They are designed to be a nation and a kingdom of priests. What does a kingdom of priests do? A kingdom of priests was designed to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham. They were designed and given the vocation to bless the world, to bless the nations, to heal every person on the world through God's presence. So this is the first time that 12 are called and given a vocation. However, as you read the text, you find that these 12, they begin to fail in their mission. These 12 tribes, instead of being outward focused, they become very inward focused. Instead of blessing the world, they're concerned with blessing themselves. Instead of giving the law and the Torah and God's presence to the nations, they keep it to themselves and they make it exceedingly difficult for outsiders to be a part. So Jesus just says, man, if this is a Nintendo box, I'm going to hit the reset button. If you know what a Nintendo is, you know what I'm talking about. So Jesus gathers 12 around him. So when the 12 are gathered and they're looking at each other, it's not just this random number. The 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament were designed to be God's community. People that carried and practiced God's presence wherever they went. But because these 12 tribes had essentially failed, Jesus is calling together 12 disciples and they are going to be the new community of God. They're going to carry and to practice God's presence. They are going to be responsible for blessing the world. And so when Jesus calls these disciples to himself, he's not calling a random huddle. These disciples know exactly what's going to happen next. When Jesus calls in this sense, he's calling them to a vocation. Now, a lot of you may know the difference between a job and a vocation. Uh, My first job was being a a Sonic car hop. Who goes to Sonic for happy hour? Maybe I'm the only one. But if you see the man with skates wobbling as he's bringing you your cherry limeade, think of me. Because that was me at 16 years old. And don't forget to tip your Sonic car hop. For me, that was a job when I was growing up. But I knew that eventually I would have a career. I would have a vocation. There's a lot of people graduating college that are saying, okay, I'm looking for my career. I'm looking for my vocation. For Jesus, when Jesus talks about a vocation, he's not talking about them being fishermen, which was their career. Or a tax collector, which was their career. He's saying your vocation, your primary responsibility in life is going to be to bless the world. To make all things new. And so Jesus calls the 12 together. He calls this new community together and he's going to give them a mission. He's going to give them a vocation. And because the disciples have been with Jesus, they're not surprised at what they hear next. 
Jesus tells them this. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and he gave them authority. Now, we want to be careful when we read the word power. A lot of times when we think of the word power uh, in the scriptures, we think about magic. Like these disciples could just do anything they wanted. They were like their own little genie in a bottle. But that's not the case. To, To the Hebrew mind, when you use the word power, very distinct images came to mind. One of the primary images was the image from Genesis 1. If you were to turn to Genesis 1, and we're not, you would find a scene in which the text says that the earth is here, but it's formless, and it's void. It's like a wasteland. It's like a desert. And it says that darkness and chaos are over the surface of the deep. There's something about the world in Genesis 1-1 which is not functioning properly. It's not working the way it's supposed to. And so as you read the story, God begins to speak. And every time God speaks, the world is shifted more into order. It's like having a Rubik's Cube. With every shift, you're moving it more and more into order. So that's what God is doing. He is restoring and reordering the world to work and to function as it's supposed to. This was the first grand act of power that's recorded in the Bible. But this became the image for all of Israel. So as you read in the book of Exodus, you find the Israelites, these 12 tribes, they've been enslaved in Egypt. And if you were to ask them, hey, would you describe your situation to us? They'd say, man, it feels like Genesis 1 all over again. It feels like we're surrounded by chaos, surrounded by darkness. This feels like a wasteland. Has anybody seen the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings? Right? So we have these images of what it may have looked like. And it's chaotic. And it's dark. And it's empty. And it's formless. And it's void. And it's horrible. But what God does in Exodus is God begins to speak and he begins to restore and to reorder the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God brings them out of slavery and he brings them to the promised land and begins to reorder the people. Those are the first two symbols of power. The third symbol of power is this. Once the Israelites come out of Egypt, God says, I'm restoring you and I'm reordering you. But I want to make sure that you stay this way. I don't want you to end up in a place like Egypt. I don't want you to end up in a place far from the promised land. So here is my law. This is how you'll practice my presence. This is how my presence will be with you. If you practice this, you're going to make sure that these tribes not only stay ordered, but that you're able to bless the world. You're going to make sure that Israel never becomes a place like Egypt and that you never end up in a place like Egypt. But as the story unfolds, Israel begins to drift from Torah, from God's reordering, from God's restoration, from God's power, and they end up in places very, very similar to Egypt. And then Israel always remembers, we forgot Torah. We stopped practicing God's law. And so God brings them back to the land and they renew their commitment to God's law. This was the power of God. 
This is how God kept the community ordered and restored and healthy. But there are two aspects to Torah. There was the written Torah that was written down, and then there was the oral Torah. The oral Torah was how they interpreted the written Torah for everyday living. It's much like the United States. We have the written constitution, and then the Supreme Court interprets what that looks like for everyday life, and that kind of becomes the oral law in a sense. The same was true with Torah. And so rabbis would come around and everybody had read the written Torah and they would begin to teach their oral Torah. This is what it means to live out God's presence in today's world. This is what it means to carry my presence. They called it their yoke. And if you took to a rabbi's oral teaching, his interpretation of the written Torah, you were said to carry the rabbi's yoke. And so when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. My interpretation of Torah is good and not burdensome, but designed to bless you and to give you life. And so when Jesus says to the twelve, that have been given the vocation to bless the world. He gives them power, meaning he's given them the privilege, the opportunity, the ability, and the capacity to reorder and restore the world. That wherever they go and they find the world in chaos, or they find darkness, or it seems formless, or it seems void, they're going to be able to speak, and they're going to be able to reorder the world. The first way they're going to do that is through proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so when we flip back a few chapters, and we're not, we find that Jesus, he's reinterpreting the written Torah. They call it the Sermon on the Plain. Everyone knows the written Torah. He says, listen, I'm going I'm to put a twist on this, and I'm going to tell you how it applies to your life. And it looks very different from the way that you're used to. It looks like instead of the rich being blessed, the poor are blessed. And instead of the powerful inheriting the earth, it's actually the meek that are going to inherit the earth. Jesus begins to flip the world on its head. He says, this is the kingdom of God. This way of living is the power of God. This is the first way that you reorder and restore people by telling them about the goodness of the kingdom and its upside down nature. And when you need more than that, you'll be able to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And so we continue. It says, he gave them power and he gave them authority. Do we have any high schoolers in the house today? No high schoolers in the house. Well, most of you at one point probably were in high school. Now, when I was in high school, we had six periods throughout the day, math, science, and whatnot. Uh, But there was one period that only about six students got to be a part of every year. And it was uh, the, the, the principal's aide, right? So you had the principal, you had their secretary, and then you had the aides. So the principal would say, hey, I need Austin out of class. He'd tell the secretary. Secretary would write a note. They'd give it to the student. Student would go to the classroom. Now, I had a problem with tardiness in high school. And it's primarily because I had an addiction to McDonald's. McDonald's sausage biscuits are probably the best breakfast on the face of the planet. That with orange juice. So 
every morning I'm driving to school, and there were two McDonald's on the way to school. So I'd drive by the first one. Oh, man, that looks good. I'd look at the clock. I just don't have time to stop. But by the time I hit the second McDonald's, I was literally salivating in my mouth. I'd say it's worth it. It's worth it. So I'd stop through the drive-thru. I'd grab some McDonald's, and inevitably— I would be late for my first period. And when I walked in, it's, it's almost as if the teacher could smell the McDonald's on me. So I'd walk in, and she would just be really, you know, frustrated. Like, Austin, why are you late? Ah, is that McDonald's? I started to rack up tardies pretty quick. Now, if you get up to like 12 tardies at my high school, you actually failed the class, right? Because they expect you to be on time. So I was at 10. I only had two left, and I knew I was going to have to change something. It was either going to be my eating habits or the way that I went into my classroom. Obviously, it was going to be the way that I went into my classroom. (laughs) So, when I would be late to class, the first 10, I would walk in chin down, shoulders humped, back arched, just embarrassed, just busted, you know? I got nothing. But what I started to do, I started to make friends with the secretary of the principal. So I'd stop by between classes, say hi, introduce myself. During the summer, I'd meet him, right? Because I knew if I could get one of those passes from that girl, I can walk into that classroom, chin up, shoulders back. So I said, so how do I actually like, cross the bridge? How do, I, how do I do that? I decided I'm just going to start bringing her a sausage biscuit every morning. <laughs> so I have my McDonald's. And I have my sausage biscuits, and I'd go in, I'd say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm late, I was in the drive-thru, it was really long. Austin, you can't stop through the drive-thru. I'd say, I know, but the sausage biscuits are so good. You want to try one? <laughs> I'd pull out and give it to her. And eventually, she started saying, man, I, I think you're onto something here. So I'd go in, I'd be smiling, I'd have my McDonald's bag, and she'd just write me a little pass, and she'd <laughs> hand it to me. So I'd walk into class late, chin up, shoulders back, just saying, I got it. That's what authority is. Authority is when people that are bigger and stronger than you are backing you. That's the situation of the disciples in this moment, is they've been given power to reorder the world, but they are backed by an authority. They are backed by Jesus. They don't walk into the world and into villages with their chin down, their shoulders hump, and their back arched. They walk in standing with the authority of Yahweh at their back. And so it continues. It says, this power and this authority, what's it for? It's to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Now, when we talk about curing diseases, the word cure here is an interesting word because it means to make well medically, like to bring to full recovery. But the word also has a second nuance. And the second nuance is this. The second nuance is that it also means to serve, to be on the same level playing field with somebody, if not lower. And so these 12, when they're sent out to heal, they're not sent out to heal from a lofty perch or from being distant, but they are called to cure and to heal by being down in the dirt with those who are sick, with those who are broken. They are the ones in the hospital room, in their homes. And so Jesus sums this up in verse 2. He says, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the oral Torah that all things are being made new and to heal the sick. 
Now, when I was at ORU and I was part of the outreach and missions program, this passage would just like, it would like jack us up, right? We'd be like spiritually pumped, like, yeah, let's do it, right? So if you're new to faith and you're reading this, you might think, oh, this seems a little fantastic. This seems really interesting. If you've been around faith for a while, you might be like me and it jacks you up, like, yeah, let's do it. And it might also make you really frustrated, Because you know that in the world we live in, we've prayed for tons of sick people and they haven't recovered. They haven't become well. We see sickness all around us. For some of us, we carry the diagnosis in our bodies and we pray for healing every day and we just don't get it. So in some sense, the kingdom is already here, but it's also not yet. And we don't have time to really unpackage that. Because what this text says, it talks about the all readiness of the kingdom. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, man, am I missing something? Is the church missing something? This proclamation of the kingdom of God, the praying for sick, why sometimes does it not happen? As I'm studying this passage and I'm reading commentators, one of the consistent things the commentators say is that underneath all of this, if there were a bedrock Underneath all of this, the commentators believe it's because Jesus and the disciples were committed to a radical life of prayer. That if Jesus was known for anything, he was known for withdrawing and for leaving to go pray in solitude and in silence. Jesus was so good at praying that it becomes one of the predominant questions of the disciples. They're with Jesus, and Jesus is rubbing off on them, but there's something that Jesus is able to do that they are not able to do, and it's prayer. So the disciples ask Jesus, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. We want to know how you pray because we want to be like you, and we're getting the sense that if we're going to be like you, we have to be able to pray like you. So Jesus launches into a teaching of prayer. And being with Jesus, being around Jesus, this attitude, this habit of prayer begins to rub off on the disciples. You know, if you're like me, you love the stories about healing, about raising the dead, about controversy and scandal. But stories about prayer, those are boring But the disciples realize that this is going to be one of the secrets and the keys to life if they're going to carry and practice the presence of God. So we're going to hit one more place quickly, then we're going to wrap it up into relevance. Go to Acts chapter 3. Jesus has been crucified. He's raised from the dead. He's appeared to many and he has ascended into heaven. And the disciples are carrying on the work of blessing the world doing what Jesus commissioned them to do in Luke chapter 9. This is chapter 3, verse 1. It says, One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Now, it's important to, to, to notice at the time of prayer, they even say this specific time, at 3 in the afternoon. Now, in ancient Judaism, passed on to first century Israel, and even passed on to today, there were these things called the divine hours, the divine offices, the offices of prayer. And it was the idea that at certain times during the day, you'd stop, you'd pause, and you'd pray. And it became the habit and the cycle 
of life. And the disciples knew because they'd been with Jesus, if they're going to be like Jesus, they were going to have to continue to practice this posture of prayer. So even after Jesus has left, the disciples continue this posture of prayer. Verse 2. As they're going up to pray, it says, Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit, begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Then Peter and John, they launch into this monologue about who Jesus is, what happened to him, and what he's going to do in the future. The disciples are then questioned about this later by the authorities. And we're going to skip to chapter 4, verse 13. They've been questioned by the elders and the, uh, the, the officials, and they answer all of their questions. And they say this about the disciples in verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and they were ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So when I read Acts, Luke chapter 9, and Acts chapter 3, I realize that being with Jesus necessitates that at some point we will be sent by Jesus. And when we're sent by Jesus, the way that we continue to be with Jesus is just as the disciples were here through prayer. Prayer is this thing when you read books on the church fathers that talk about it. It's a thing that changes them and that transforms them. It's the place in life where they pause and they remember that, you know, in in the midst of a chaotic and a dark and a formless and a void world, God is reordering everything. And as we begin to pray, God, would you you reorder my life? Would you restore my life? We begin to bump into other people that need restoration. And so I'm learning this because I know that at times it's so easy to become frustrated with the situations of life. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your school. And if you're like me, you have the tendency to worry about it. And it has the tendency to stress you out and you begin to think about it all the time. And the more you worry about it, the more you worry about it. And the more you stress about it, the more you stress about it. Like, I can't ever actually get done worrying. Like, I think my worry, like, you know, real is going to come to an end, but it doesn't. The more I feed my worry the more I actually worry. So as a disciple, what I'm learning to do is when I'm in the midst of a family situation that's chaotic and dark and wildly stressful, instead of worrying about it, I'm finding myself trying to pause and say, God, would you restore 
my family. And then I begin to worry about it. I say, no, 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 don't, don't, no. God, would you restore my family? Oh, my dad's stressed. No, 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 no. God, would you restore my family? Because as we read these passages, we learn that the heart of God is for healing and for restoration. And so for some of you, the employment, financial situation of your life is just stressing you out. And it's difficult. Instead of worrying about it, we need to become the kind, no, 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 I'm not going to, no, no. He supplies all of my needs. Oh, but my job, no, 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 no. God, would you come and restore my employment? For some of us, it's school, trying to get into school, trying to come up with the money for school, trying to pass your classes, amen? Instead of worrying about what, what, what's going to happen after school, no, 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 God, your plans for me are good. And the more we can begin to turn our worry into prayer, the more that we begin to be changed and we begin to be transformed. And it's in those moments where God's kingdom actually begins to break through to us. So we find ourselves like Peter and John walking up to the temple at the time of prayer, realizing that before the proclamation of the kingdom of God comes, before signs and wonders and healings and the miraculous, there are these quiet, dull, boring moments of prayer. But the mundane, the boring, and the dull, those things always come before the grand moments. If you've ever wanted to be the quarterback in a high school state championship game, that's the dream of like every teenager in Oklahoma because we don't have professional teams. Uh, If you want to do that, you can't just expect and dream to be the quarterback. You have to put in the long, boring, dull, mundane hours of waking up at 5 a.m. to lift, to throw, and to run. For a lot of us, we want to be healthy. We want to be strong. We want to be fast. We want to be filled with energy. We also want to eat chocolate and hamburgers, right? Like those are two different questions. If I say, hey, do you want to be healthy and strong and fast? You say, yeah. Do you want to eat a ton of vegetables? No. But it's these behind the scenes, dull, mundane things that prepare us for the grand things. And so as we're in this place and we always hope and we pray for God's kingdom to come and to do miraculous things among us, we realize that we need a bedrock of prayer. And one of the most fascinating things about this Acts passage is that the people that notice Peter and John, they say, wow, they're unschooled and they're ordinary. Like they didn't go to Talbot. The life of the kingdom and the life of prayer is for the everyday ordinary, mundane, boring, unschooled person. The only thing required is that we choose to be with Jesus. So this morning we want to practice being with Jesus for a few moments. We're going to take communion. The communion team is going to come forward. And I just encourage you, whatever your need is in this time, we'll just turn really quickly Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 16. You guys don't have to flip there. We'll put it on the screen. For time's sake, I'm going to read it from the screen too. Let us then, 
let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Whatever your time of need is now, I encourage you as we take communion to make it your prayer, God, would you come restore my family? God, would you come restore my finances? God, would you come restore my school? Would you restore my mind? Would you restore my heart? Would you restore my body? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your, uh, your heart is to heal. Your heart is to make all things new. So God, we ask you that you would come in this moment through communion, through this bread and this blood, through this cup. And you'd begin to make all things new and you would throw us into postures of prayer. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.